This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below. Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast in association with Sportful. Happy New Year. I am your host, Joe Robinson with me as ever in 2022, Mr. James Spender. Happy New Year, Mr. Joseph Robinson. And to bring in the new year, we thought we'd bring in a very good guest. The man, the myth, the thinker, Mr. Roman Bardet. But before we get into a conversation that covers everything from never-ending wine to his time at Asie Tour La Mondiale, James and I are going to run in some of the things we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling. James, Happy New Year, mate. Happy New Year. Bond 2022. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all right. And new you, new me. Same, same as last year, if I'm honest. That's quite good. Time has not, time has not ravaged you, and neither has the procession of one virus mutating into another. Exactly. I, we're here. We're into a new year. Uh, hopefully a year of promise, progress, and partying, the three Ps. Um, <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that what you'll be campaigning on this year? Yeah, yeah. Alongside my eternal policy that I pitched long before Rishi Sunak got hold of it and made it into um, Eat Out to Help Out, which is pie and a pint for a fiver. Um, I'll explain that in depth to you another time, James, not now. Because right now, rather than things that you're liking or disliking in the world of cycling, I want to know, obviously, as we've entered into a new year, if you have any New Year's resolutions, either cycling-based or not cycling-based, anything. I want to know what you're going to be looking to change in your life this year. Well, I mean, that's a, that is a chunky question isn't it yeah it's like parkinson or i mean it's really yeah way to, way to go to put your co-host on the spot i mean i have i have thought of, of some of these things i was discussing this not so long ago as, as one does around the year they're all desperately boring though they're very worthy things like you know uh create better boundaries around work which i think we all need to do it's quite difficult isn't it working from home in this in this day Correct. and age and work kind of spills over into personal time personal time Personal time never spills over into work. Of course, of course, I'm, of course, I'm. Um, so, I mean, I quite like to lose a bit of weight. I've put on quite a bit of weight over Christmas. That's kind of like hopefully that's a shorter resolution than a whole year's resolution. I'd like to start writing the great British novel, which will um, mean that someone plucks me from this obscurity and takes an option out on said novel and makes me incredibly wealthy, a la J.K. Rowling style. And I never have to work again yes. because I do like being a cycling journalist, but I've also really enjoyed putting my feet up this Christmas. So if I could knock out a novel every couple of years, 
get to kind of like Philip <laughs> Roth sort of like notoriety. I'd, I'd be happy with that. I don't think that's too much to ask. Um, I'm go- I tell you what, good one. I'm going to watch more musicals. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Going to watch. Do you know why? Shall I tell you on what? stage? Not. I, I'm, I'm not going to say no to the stage. Never say no to the theatre. That's what they say, isn't it? Oh, that's, I think that's an old theatre expression, isn't it? A bit like break a leg. Never say no to the theatre, boy. They used to say that. If you're ever offered a free ticket um, to the theatre, always accept never it. Say no. yeah, never say no. Exactly, always accept it. There's no such thing as a free lunch, but there are tickets to the theatre that you can get for next to nothing if you go to the returns office on uh, Tottenham Court Road. But, um, yeah, more, more musical theatre, please. Because I watched, uh, you know um, that French film that's made into like, uh, you know, the French the French one, what's it called? The Miserables. Yes. Les Miserables. Yeah, The Miserables. The sad people with the sad eyes. Um, I watched that and actually found it quite uh, quite palatable, even though Russell Crowe, because I'm, ta- so I'm not talking about the theatre production, I'm talking about... No, you you, you watched the, the Oscar-nominated... Oscar-nominated 2012 version um, with Hugh Jack. There's a real, juxta- real juxtaposition of performances in that because you get from the highs of Anne Hathaway and Samantha Barks to the real lows of Russell Crowe. <laughs> Hello, I'm going to sing anything I want. I don't even know if I'm in tune, but I'm kind of flat and kind of Aussie. But I'm not really going to sing like this, mate, because I'm going to leave that to Hugh Jackman, my fellow Aussie. So it's kind of a bit like that. And weirdly, it's almost like it's not really about a film. It's, not, it's more of a film about when is Hugh Jackman going to run into Russell Crowe again? Because they're just constantly running into each other. Russell Crowe, for those who haven't seen it, suggest you go and watch it, is uh, basically a kind of very, very straight edge, real Jobsworth, isn't he? Jobsworth. Javert. Yeah, Jobsworth Javert, they call him, um, French uh, police officer. And he's got uh, Hugh Jackman under kind of some kind of slave bond. Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like... 24601. <laughs> you, you know it well, 24601. Um, John Valjean's uh, phone number from back in the 1700s. Um, was it 1800s when the French... So it's about the French peasant revolt. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Hugh Jackman goes missing. Um, he uh, sort of goes through a sort of redemptive phase, becomes mayor for a while. Yep. Mr. Mayor, Monsieur Mayor. Um, Helps save that person who gets trapped under the horse yeah, cart. Yeah, that's the other thing. It could just also be called Hugh Jackman lifts heavy objects. Because right at the beginning, he lifts a really heavy mast from this boat that's like broken somewhere. That he picks it up yep. for no conceivable reason. And then later on, he lifts um, a cart off an old man who's being crushed. To- and lo and behold, that's useful, isn't it? Because later on, he's going to need a bit of help. And he finds himself, well, what's that? He's gonna. He's found the old man. The old man is going to help him get away from guess who? Russell Crowe again. Two little fun factoids for you about that film. Yes. Factoid number one. You know, at the beginning when Jean Valjean is hiding in the church. I do. And the priest comes out. Yes. That's Colm Wilkinson, who played the original Jean Valjean on the West End. Good factoid. I like that a lot. The the original opposite. um, Michael Ball was in the original casting as uh, Marius. Eddie Redmayne, Um, in fact. (laughs) Eddie Redmayne's character. Um, and secondly, parts of that film were filmed in Greenwich at the Painted Hall on the riverbank. I said that. I said parts that when we were watching it. I said that when we were watching scene. it. It looks like Greenwich. And to bring it back to cycling, James, yeah. in that painting hall, mm-hmm. I went to Ernesto Carnago's 80th birthday party. It's just too bloody perfect. And that is why we should all be watching more musicals. But the thing that the thing I realised, that the reason, because, you know, once, once is fluke, my friend. Fool me once, shame on you. Give me a good musical twice, and I might have to reconsider my approach to Stephen Sondheim's work. 
So I watched A Star Is Born. The which one? The most three? recent with uh, Lady Gaga. With uh, her uh, Oscar-winning original score, score film music, yep. and um, uh, Bra- uh, Bradley Cooper, whose other films that made Bradley Cooper f- escape me, except for The Hangover. Uh, Silver Linings Playbook. There you go. There's one. Oh yeah, that one. That's quite good, isn't it? So anyway, he's got, and he, you know, he, he's, he learnt to, he kept him, kept, uh, kept a kind of um, a good account of himself as someone, as a method actor, in as much as he learned to play and sing in a way that Russell Crowe clearly was just like, I can't be arsed with that, mate. Disappointing <laughs> that. Um, so, so very good. And Lady Gaga, I think. She would make an, an a very impressive Amy Winehouse if they want to do a biopic. Of right. Amy. <laughs> okay. Similar voices, similar kind of features, um, facially, uh, and I I really enjoyed it. And I'm currently learning to play shallow on the guitar, which is their big number. Which is again written by Lady Gaga. Yeah, written excellent by, song. Excellent um, song. You need to now go back and watch the film from the '60s. Which was A Star Is Born, but it was Barbara Streisand and I believe Chris Christopherson. Chris Christopherson, the, so good they the named him one and a half times. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's even I think there's four versions or something. I think the first one's in the 30s, so I might watch all of those. But that was great. And you know, for those that haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it. Very sad ending. Very sad indeed. Can I give you some musical recommendations that you should watch, James? Yeah, go on then. And we can report back on soon. We'll do the musical podcast. So I'm, go- I'm going to give you three. Yeah. I'm going to give you three that I want you to go over and out and watch. Number one is Dreamgirls, the film. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I'm writing loosely down. based, loosely based on the ri- the rise of Motown and the Supremes. Oh, Diana Ross. Yes, okay. I'm with um, you. I've seen that advertised. Jennifer Hudson, Beyonce, Jamie Foxx, Eddie Murphy, I believe, steals the show um, in a role that's like loosely based, I believe, on like Little Richard. Um, excellent musical. Hudson and Beyonce both have two fantastic solo numbers in it. Um, I've also seen that on the stage, by the way. It was very good when I saw it. Number two, if you've got Disney Plus, I urge you to go watch the original Broadway cast of Hamilton perform Hamilton. Did try that. Did Don't try that. Got ten minutes in. Is like, that nah, mate? Nah. Give, give it another right. go. Right. Give it another go. Get through it. It's a revolutionary musical. Okay. Uh, and number three, it's just been remade into uh, by Steven Spielberg. West Side Story. But, but it's the original West Side Story. That is one that I have seen from my childhood, and I love. I did love that. Okay, have you seen that. that? We're going to swap that out for uh, the original, the the film version of Cabaret with Liza Minnelli and Michael York and Joel Grey, which is fantastic. It's about a cabaret club in the 1930s as Germany becomes Nazi Germany. Perfect, and it's fantastic, and. From uh, chatting to you earlier, I know that you've recently seen Cabaret and Cabaret at the moment starring Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne. On the West Mate, who's also, as we just said, in Les Mis. It all comes full circle. Exactly. How wonderful. How wonderful indeed. So that's uh, that's quite a lot of chat dedicated to a rather... It's not, I'm not even really sure if that counts as a resolu- resolution. Oh, yeah, I'm also going to do more binge drinking. I figure that a good way to weight loss is to not drink during the week and only drink at the weekends but do so heavily. But that's a sort of side note. What are you going to do? for your news resolutions or what you're not going to do for your new year's resolutions 
So my New Year's resolutions, James, is I've entered a half marathon in March. 13.6 miles. No, that's, Give that's, or take. that's not right. 13.2, isn't it? 13.2, I believe. Yes. Um, and because I've entered this half marathon, I have knocked alcohol on the head until such time. Um, not so much because I feel like the alcohol itself is bad for me because it's delicious. It's the fact that I have hangovers mm. and then I, I lose the day after. Yes. So I often lose Sunday morning where I could be riding or running to being in bed or watching Sunday brunch with Simon Rimmer and Tim Lovejoy. Uh, 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 uh. But because I don't want to do that anymore and I want to really train properly for this half marathon, I'm going to knock alcohol on the head. I've also entered the Tour of Flanders Sportif, which is like four weeks after the half marathon. Very good. So hopefully I can get some really good running form, drop a few kilos for the run, and then really help like transfer that into to my riding. Um, my other my other non cycling related um, resolutions very similar to yours this year. I'll be on a sabbatical, James. Really? I will be on a sabbatical for six weeks, and I've promised myself that I will I will finally write the sitcom that I prom I threatened to do back in 2013 from my time working in a retail shop. Um, I'm gonna I, I'm going to attempt to write it and see see how that goes. It'll probably be awful and it'll probably never see the light of day. But I'm gonna give it a go. It'll be fun. Yeah, thank you. Um, and my cycling resolution is, and it's quite a big one for me, James. No, you know me well. Is to become more proficient in terms of my maintenance skills. So just before Christmas, you'll know I, I rung you or I texted you in quite a bit of a state because I've been sent a new test bike that hadn't been sort of sent with the chain on sort of an uncompleted chain and I was panicking as to how I was going to do that and I eventually had to take it to a local bike shop Sukup Cycles for them to fit the chain it was like a two minute job and I felt really embarrassed so going forward into 2022 I want to learn how to do more in terms of upkeep and maintenance of my bike because it is quite poor working in this industry not knowing how to you know I can do the basics like fit a cassette change an inner tube etc but I'd like to know how to do stuff like indexing gears properly or changing cables um, wrapping bar tape well which I don't think just I don't think that's maintenance that's just a skill I think that's a knack that you get you learn but yeah that's what I want to do I think that's good man I think that's very good so uh, this time next year you'll be writing credits alongside Stephen Merchant You'll be running. You'll have bought Sig Cup cycles with your SciTech Level Three City and Guilds bike maintenance degree. Yeah, um, and you'll be fifty-four kilos. I mean, fingers crossed. <laughs> Eddie Redmayne will play you in a film. Um, what a, what a perfect representation of me he would give. Fantastic. Um, before we descend into more musical theatre chat, I think we should stop boring the listener and get into our interview, which is quite a good one today. Because before Christmas, we sat down with Roman Bardet in a London pub. Um, we'll apologise for the sound quality on this one. We recorded it in a pub in the middle of London. There are building, there's building work on every corner in London, and people, you know, being loud and shouting about the bow bells and jelly deals at every turn. So, sorry about that one. 
we're in a pub called the King and Queen. It's on Charlotte Street in the middle of London. You wouldn't find it if you're a tourist. No. And also for the listener, this is the pub that Cyclist Magazine drank in every day for 10 years since its inception. And we're in the upstairs room. So a good fact about this pub man is, you know Bob Dylan? He, yeah. he, he drank in here before. There's actually a oh, picture yeah. of him downstairs. When he was in yeah, from the, I think like the 60s or the yeah. 70s. So that's the big claim to fame in this pub. Is that okay. You know, it's the same family, still holder. Yeah, so it's the same guy. There's Colin, is the landlord. And Colin's dad, you'll see him. He just sits downstairs drinking tea. And he's like in his 80s, 90s. Okay. And I think he was the old landlord. So cool. this is, and it's a very traditional pub with the, the, the mirrors on the wall, the, the beer themed mirrors, the red sort of patterned carpet, original fireplace as well. Yeah. So you don't, do you get many, I mean, you don't get these sort of places in France. It's more like bistros, I guess. And yeah, yeah, bistro, but it's all the shit beers. And, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm a bit the same of, uh, of inside my perception when I'm, yeah, and I'm going around France to find some good uh, wine bar, you know? Yeah. Because I'm pretty, pretty interested in natural wine. Because Right, like yeah. un- unfiltered wine. Yeah, unfiltered yeah. wine and, uh, yeah, probably the less... Um, the less processed. The yeah. less processed, the better. I mean, even more focused to make your wine, but you don't put in, in France anything, anything right. in. And that's um, 95% of the place you can have a drink have a glass of wine you won't find this uh, this kind of wine this kind of also love for the for the good winemaker you know so for you Roman as a Frenchman where is the best place you can get wine in France because in the UK yeah. it's always perceived that the best wine is Chateau Neuf de Pape that's always been yeah. that's always been understood everyone yeah. always says that that's the, 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 the good expensive wine Okay. And then if you don't get that, you get, as a standard, a good bottle of wine is always a Cote de Rhone. You can get a good Cote de Rhone. Yeah, but where, you where guys you... like really strong wine, really, really <laughs> dark. Yeah. Um, now for me, um, in my hometown, you can find uh, many, many restaurants, but you can find at least just two places. Where in, one is really in Clermont. In Clermont. Yeah. And yeah, otherwise, um, otherwise, I would say, yeah, in France, it's a really... It's really a big deal. The wine is really a big deal, so uh, you can have, yeah, for sure the the classic hard style will remains to, to Bordeaux and Burgundy. But yeah. Burgundy is super expensive, uh, really making really fine wine. And I really like the new, with the new region. Uh, it's not very popular, but uh, my favorite wine is uh, is from the. Um, the grape from Gamay. It's found uh, on the east of the uh, northeast of the Côte d'Ivoire Valley. It's in Beaujolais. Right. Okay. Beaujolais is the really the it's where the the origins of natural wine came from. Ah. Okay. So yeah, it's super super juicy, super easy to drink, and um, it's also what we call in France when you just sit and like you do here. Having a beer, just have a glass of wine. No, there is nothing about uh, making some big stuff about it. It's just enjoying because it's highly drinkable. So, how does a glass of natural wine rate to your Adnams Powell that you're drinking now? 
Uh, it's, it's great. It's quite different because I'm not really used uh, only when I'm really in the off-season of celebrating something, but I'm not used to drink wine before five or six. Really? Okay. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, but yeah, it's a bit the same. Yeah, but I'm, it's, for me, there is really something. I'm not thinking about what came with hardcore and stuff, but just, just a thing to say, okay, we have a glass of wine. It's also, I think, pretty part of, um, I don't go to any restaurant without having at least a glass of wine. Okay. Even in the UK? Uh, in the UK, it's quite different. So just I just enjoy the beer yeah, yeah. because you, you need to. Yeah. Well, the UK is getting a bit of a reputation for sparkling wine. Yeah. So in the can, um, I'm not really. Are you not a sparkling, a, wine a sparkling guy? No. no champagne or unless you've won a race. Yeah, just just one glass to celebrate something. Yeah, different. yeah. Would you rather, if you won a big race, would you rather crack open a nice bottle of red? Yeah, I prefer. I prefer. Yeah. So um. Yeah. Roman, let's get on to your season. So your first year at Team DSM, which was. A big move for you because obviously you've been at Azure de Gere since 2012, well, almost your entire cycling career. If you were to describe your year at Team DSM in one word, what would it be? You're promising. Promising? Yeah. Yeah? Why is that? Yeah, because um, it was yeah, it's a really, really big change for me. I really had to get off really, that's a common expression, but it really is. Out of my comfort zone, you know, because really put myself a bit in, in danger because I was really bad um, life with really family, maybe tour, I can do a bit my own stuff, but I also need at some, need at some point to, yeah, to explore a new area and uh, because you know how competitive is this sport and you can just, uh, if you just remain the same over the years, you just uh, slowly but surely decreasing. So. Mm. I really also wanted to find a place where I can be really the best rider I can be. And uh, I was 100% convinced that uh, Team DSM was the, was the right place to, to take on this new challenge. And, uh, and I'm not disappointed because I'm really enjoying myself on the bike with the team. Mm. There, there's a perception that Team DSM have quite strict measures and strict protocols and um we used ch i chatted for instance to jai hindley last year and he said that it was always team before individual rider so it was always what's best for the team rather than just an individual does and obviously it, team dsm uses their own coaches their own nutritionists and you can't i, I believe you can't use your own right like own coaches does that yeah this is a list you can do now yeah is no, it, nowadays for me it's, it's completely crazy Think about having your own trainer, right? Man, we are 2021, and uh, you know, part of what happened is the doping scandal and stuff mm. with the guy a bit out of control by the team. I mean, the you know, we are talking about, about a team, and um, this is a point that has absolutely nothing to do with the discussion we have, but also in cycling, we are the only. only one of the only one professional sport with uh, yeah playing it's running by team, but people are already uh, all over the world. Yeah. Basically, you, know? you can live wherever you want. Yeah. So yeah, at least you really need to have the 
trainer from the team to to make sure you're also really part of this. You know? So you feel because otherwise you just put a jersey on on the race and you're yeah. just an individual. Yeah, and that's not how it works. Does it suit you? This system? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. the system and uh, because yeah, yeah, because yeah, I need uh, I really had uh, all the support I need from the team. Yeah, and also they are really yeah basically I couldn't yeah can be a bit of paradoxical person because uh, you know I'm really kind of guy who likes to some days uh, even in races just just have a drink trying to socialize and breaking a bit the routine but on the racing aspect and yeah all that comes with uh, the performance I don't want to make any any compromise you know? yeah so and team DSM are already taking care of all the area of the performance and they're already making my life uh, really much, much easier than it was in the past. Mm. Because obviously you were incredibly brave to leave Aegis yeah? because you were the, yeah. the golden child, the team leader, and yeah. it was comfortable because it was a French team. Yeah, but at the end of the day, what matters? What else is results? Mm. How much win you can do and how, how much you can have an impact on the on the team and on the when you race under the GSL team, how good you can you can be. And for sure we have been I'm very proud of the the story we had with AG Tour, but I really did at, at some point I needed something new because I need yet also to have the some new people around me to just speak to me as any other writers and not as wrong about it because I've done this and this in the past. Yeah. Then it was very uh, a new chapter, a clear table. We sit, we, we sit in the table with the team and they said, okay, I don't want to be have any uh, any additional, I mean, statue or something like that. I just want to be just one of, just one wild of team DSM, not, not the guy who finished uh, earlier back in the days uh, in each race at, the, at, at this place, you know. Mm. I really wanted to start again as a as a new pro. Really, and is that yeah. how you felt this year? Did you feel like a, a yeah, new exactly? Pro? But also, I really felt from day one that uh, the team really puts a lot of confidence in the, that I would be agree with what uh, with their proposal, mm. the plan they have for me. What is the plan? They think. They could make me a better writer, a stronger writer. Right. A, a better. That, that was my only concern to go in this team, and also, and also, yeah. To be honest, uh, uh, there was, n yeah. When you think about a team that really share your your value and your ethics and way of working and stuff, there are not too too many options for me. Yeah, it's a young team. It's a very young team, and you're one of the more experienced writers in that team. So have you taken on a role of being sort of a teacher to younger guys? Yeah. Yeah, in a sense, it can be. I think um, it's not like they are never like uh, sitting on a table and uh, say to guys, okay, it's, this is how it is. And no, never like this. But I think we we try to build. It's a bit informal because I'm not the kind of pe person who wants to have the attention and stuff, but uh, I really like the way uh, we are doing things with also Matt Winston, 
yeah. is my personal coach. Mm. And it's more informal, but we are really trying to also involve people as we are living and it's really open to discussion to what how I see the, the race, how are what my personal experience are to make sure we always try to to make the best possible plan for every people in the team. Mm. And so you said that obviously you're grateful for that time at AG Tour and you enjoyed it because you had yeah. great results. But you I read in a previous interview that you said that you never felt fully comfortable with the leadership the aspect, the being the star rider. And were no. you were you did you feel relieved to leave that behind? Because yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a sense for sure. Yeah. Hundred percent sure. Did it feel like you because could you know, express it was yourself? So not comfortable for anyone because there are some greetings who come along. So if you can say okay that was bad, but also in the way I was feeling compared to the, the riders, it wasn't fair. Right. Yeah. And I don't have any of this now in Team DSM. Yeah. You're just I'm just the one rider. Yeah, one rider. But I also hundred percent confidence of the team to to give my best and to, to get wins and stuff, but I'm not special. I'm not special. Yeah. So you obviously though you spend a lot of time at AG Tour. So is there anything you miss from your time there? Is there anything that you obviously you joined this? I think experience? yeah, for for sure. Um, in the sense of the the friendship over ten years, you built some strong relationships and. Friendship, people that I still call every week, and uh, and it's also quite normal. For now, I'm just one year with Team DSM, and I don't have the same relationship you know, mm -hmm. with, with the people, even if we have good time. But uh, for me, I'm, I'm also not maybe not super. So yeah, it, it took some time to really. Build really some friendship, just over the fact that you are good uh, workers together. Yeah? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean. Um, so at the end of the day, for me, it's much the same. It's just you know, for sure, uh, we are lucky enough to make a living of this. But as long as um, today I, I won't be competitive anymore to score big wins, or I won't be the standard. First consideration is uh, how good I can be. Yeah. And, um, so this is quite a general question, but would you say change is a good thing? I think so. I think so because yeah, the more experience you can have, the better it. You, you have to change for some reason, and uh, but, but when you, I think when you spend quite a, a long time with the same team, same people, that, that works also for everyday life. It's only challenge you. Your reasons to to keep exploring yourself. Mm. I, I, in my research before we met Roman, I saw an article in which you said that one of you appreciate or look up to people that always chase their dreams. So, are you still chasing your dream of winning a Tour de France? Not really, not really. In a sense, uh, I'm. I think I can. I can be a really good, uh, really good actor over, over three weeks, but you know, I just 
that's when I wake up every morning and say, okay, uh, so far my, my career is a failure because I, I haven't uh, succeeded to win the Finn France. Yeah. Because there is much, much more chances that it never happened. But, you know, so I, it's the same with the the way we approach control racing. The same, we just are there on the start line, ready to give our best, but we don't talk about any results. They yeah. don't came in the zero. Said, okay, need to go. We we hit for the podium. Said, we just try to do our best. We just focus on the thing we can control. Yeah. And uh, the level of the the field of the competitors is basically one thing you can control. And, uh, and you also need to take uh, a bit of happiness of what you're what you're doing every day yeah. and if you're just only focusing the results or on seeing winning the tour or anything like this you can really be successful with the study yeah. and it's also hard because one other aspect you have to deal with and i, I spoke to julian alaphilippe about this and this was a couple of years ago the first time he took the other jersey and everyone was asking are you going to become a grand tour rider and he said to me that he was scared because he's French. And when you're a Grand Tour favorite or you race Grand Tours and you're French, you have the pressure of an entire country on you. Is that something that's always been a burden for you, for yourself and others like Thibaut Pinot, is that you're not just racing to try and win a Tour de France like Pogacar yeah. or Froome, you're racing with 30 years of expectation from a whole country. Yeah, for sure. It's um, it's even bigger when you race in a French team. Yeah. Mm. So maybe this is the chance of Julian if, he, if one day he targets. I think maybe he has this in mind to really go for the what you see in the tour. We'll figure out, he already figure out that, yeah, it's not only him riding his bike, but uh, also many other things that come along, you know. Mm. And, uh, but yeah, and also it's also, in my opinion, uh, from what I learned, it's also very, it can also make a bit of distance with what well, just the racing is. Right. And it's not really easy because, yeah, when you are many times doing over three weeks, really on the limit, and you have to take the right decisions uh, to be, yeah. To be sure to do this one, you really need to to think about racing the bike and what uh, what people expect from you. Right, and that can make a really big difference. So that period in 2016, 2017, when you got second and then further the tour, did you enjoy that? Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed. It. I really felt I was really reaching, even if I I was not even really close to win because it's not like the real journey. In the last day, I guess. No, I really felt like I could uh, really have an impact. Uh, I mean, 16 and 17 are different because I think it was more, even more enjoyable in 17 because I came back to the tour with a lot of pressure. And uh, even if I finished third instead of, of second, I think uh, I've done much better in, in 17, being really actor, and also I had to deal with the, all the pressure and uh, yeah, before the tour and during the tour. So, but yeah, it was also something we really felt with the, with the team because they were 
I'm really not used to, you know. So when I joined Team DSM, it was really for for everyone. It was really uh, a new area we were exploring. You know? mm. And in Team DSM, I didn't have this feeling. You know, they, are, they won the Giro with with Tom. They, you know, so it's really good to me. When I said uh, earlier that uh, I was really feeling that, like a new role, it's really good, it's really okay. You know, I really rely on the team and uh, on their experience and their knowledge about uh, what cycling is. And it was uh, completely the the other side. I was really an actor. And uh, did you enjoy this year? Then not you because you went to the Giro and then you went to the Vuelta instead of the Tour. Did you enjoy that more? That not having to prepare for the big race in France like you've had and you can yeah that. just because obviously okay, just you, a, you did well by first experience I mean uh, yeah at some point in my career it was I asked for the team to go and Giro and Volta instead of the Tour but it was not easy to accept because it's what I can understand yeah yeah because at the end of the day they pay you and they they need to look uh, what's the the best options are for, for them as well because there are also mainly concerns around the cycling. But yeah, so I really felt uh, much more easier to do this year with Team DSM. I think it was really also a good start to, to do it because yeah, we don't have to put ourselves in, on the trial and say, okay, is it a success or this, this transfer? Is a success or a failure because yeah for sure if I just take a tour last year we would say hold on in front of the people will have say okay it was good or it was bad. It, last year was a really good starting point because I could explore myself with a team in many different areas. Mm. And one thing you've always said is that you want to race Paris Bay. Do you reckon that become a reality at DSM? Yeah, I don't know. Would you have liked to have raced this year? That's really realistic to 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 be um, because. I'm really a uh, so competitive rider, and uh, I just want to line up on races where I can make an impact. Yeah, it's not really okay. the case in Paris. I can have a good day because I, I raced twice on the on the Cobras and the Tour. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit different, and mm. uh, it's also um, it's going to also be a, a year straight if you go to to Gobert. Four weeks or something for the duo. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a dream, but yeah, I mean, as long as I really want to be competitive and and focus on achievable goals. Roman, when we was on the way over here, you were telling me you became a father. In so how is it? A, your son? Yeah. What's his name? Angus. Angus. So how Angus is twenty? Say twenty months. Twenty months. Yeah. So how how are you finding fatherhood? Uh, for me, it's the, it's the best experience I can, I can really have. It's also, but also for me, the perfect mix before it's not being a team DSM and being a father. For me, it's the perfect mix because I had uh, this conversation many times with uh, my, my closest friend, friends. Yeah. Uh, about, yeah, I didn't know how I could uh, handle being a father. A professional cyclist in the condition I I was two or three years ago. Right. And I was always looking. Yeah. Basically, out of training, my time was very 
affect our way of view is looking, yeah, something about what we could do best in the next training camp, what we could maybe do better on nutrition and altitude. And it was super interesting because, you know, I was, I was really involved in the world performance of the team, but it took me also a lot of, of time, of, uh, yeah. of fears, of stuff like this. And uh, now, uh, yeah, in Team JSM, I really felt I'm also just, uh, they really helped me to just have the focus to, to ride my bike, you know? And yeah. it's also really allowed me to have really more time off. And also, but also, I think, what fatherhood brings to you. I mean, also the, the, the ability to say, okay, uh, by, by 5 p.m. today, now I switch off of cycling and just that. Yeah. So you must have been one of the rare few last year when there was no racing. You actually probably got to spend more time with your child, with Angus exactly. than, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you probably enjoyed it. It was just perfect, yeah. Next it was just perfect. Yeah. It's really, it's not fair to say that because, yeah, you know, you all know what uh, we went through, but yeah, for, yeah, on a really personal side, and I can really feel it now, you know, now I can be away. I've almost been away at the end of the, of the year, it will be probably around 200 days away from home. Yeah. But the thing is, uh, I spent uh, his last eight or nine months we at home we see him every day and uh, so it doesn't feel that now he's really used to the fact that I'm here so I can really leave him and find him back three weeks after and uh, he still has the same uh, idea with me so yeah. it's really nice. No. So yeah. I remember talking to Greg Van Avermaet when he had his first kid and he said that it changed the way he saw bike racing. Exactly. Has it changed your yeah. perception? Yeah, yeah, because we really felt that there is uh, also something that in the end may be more important, for sure. You know? yeah. But it's, it's quite a bit yeah, paradoxical because on the other end, it also helps me to have more focus. Because you're riding for someone. Because he's yeah, riding for he, he went from riding for himself to riding yeah, for his exactly. daughter. And um, yeah, because it's also allowed me to have a bit more more freedom, more my mind is yeah, is more free for sure. Really? Because yeah, I really felt that yeah, okay, this is, this is my job, I want to be the best rider possible. But also I have something more important in my life, so it just won't be the end of the world if I don't win this bike race. Yeah. On the other side, has it made you? I, Brian Holm once told me that the perfect bike racer was single, unmarried, and didn't have a kid yeah, in a career. For how long? But but because obviously now you have a family. You know, does it make you think when you're you know, in a race? Or? For me, the, I would say the biggest sacrifice when you are young bike rider is really the how you. Or you are separate from the real world. It's just my perception because maybe I'm, you know, my, my best year for sure when I was cycling, when I was a student on the side, I, I go to the university three or four days a week and I can meet other people. So, you know, people are already um, really thinking we are living the best possible life, which is true because we are, we made a living for our patients, 
but yeah, it's also for me it was really hard to also be with the with the same people talk about cycling. I think everyone is different, but for me, for sure, the, it's not it's not a good idea to just uh, think about cycling. Because you, for, you have to you have to sacrifice so much from such a young age as a cyclist, and for example. You went to university and you have a degree from uh, Grenoble Management yeah. School. Yeah. So, but you couldn't live the normal, the student life that I led, which was. Yeah, during my first three years. You did? I did. A lot of drinking and. Yeah, yeah I'd had a. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just ready for one year. Ready right. for one year. It was really bad. But fun. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was the best of life because I was 18. I'm really, really close to my parents, so I went to the university, it was 45 minutes drive away, and uh, I had my apartment there. I was a law student, and uh, I jumped from the junior ranks to the to one of the biggest uh, amateur cycling team. Right. I had to return. I just, just signed, I think, two times. I don't know why, because I didn't train much. I was away every Saturday. I don't know why I couldn't do this anymore because I was there Thursday, Friday, Saturday from yeah from from September to late April and doing the but yeah it was for me the most enjoyable period because you know I was really I really like to ride my bike but it's also something else you know alongside and uh, do you think that's helped you now because I talk to a lot of cyclists who say from the age of fifteen. Yeah. They sacrificed everything. They didn't do what they, when their friends were going to the pub at the first time when they were seventeen, eighteen. They didn't go when their friends went off to university. They didn't. Do you think the year that year you had of normality has helped you in the long run? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Not sure because yeah, you know we are in cycling. We are facing uh, much more. I think really. Hard, hard times, hard periods, than really good ones, you know. So um, when you have the also the background, to put things in perspective and say, that, okay, well, I can also meet other people. Because what really people don't realize is you, you can be really super isolated. Because when you're at home, you basically just meet almost no one. You know? just go for training and. For uh, yeah, uh, at work and uh, and then uh, you have to, to go to bed early. I mean, and you also you have a bit of chronic fatigue over the over the day. So it's uh, yeah, it's easy to really get a bit uh, really on the margin and uh, you don't have a, a really social life as uh, any as anyone. If you don't build a strong um, circle of relationships who are really close to you but not related to cycling for me that, that's the, really the key element so, yeah. so do you think have you always found it easy to separate life from the bike and life normal yeah. life yeah. because yeah, that's a problem sure. that a lot of cyclists struggle with yeah probably yeah, probably. yeah. yeah for me that was always the key I have some really close friends in the cycling world, but also maybe some of them are 
they already they like what, what I'm doing, but they come on to uh, a drink or dinner and they, they don't speak about cycling. Yeah. And do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy yeah, exactly. not talking about cycling? Exactly. Yeah. Like we spoke about rugby on the way here. Yeah, no, exactly. No, no yeah, cycling. Exactly. Now, that's for me, but you know, everyone is, is really different because I, I also find some some guys, some really young guys, really talented, who are really, really hundred percent with cycling. They watch everything. They, but when you discuss a bit with them, you, I don't figure out that they have any girlfriend because they didn't go to university and stuff. They don't really, they don't really know people outside of cycling. So mm-hmm. maybe that's it's fine for them. But yeah, for me. Yeah. I always felt a bit, you know, I, it's the same, I don't really like to go to training camp and stuff because it's way, it can be really, really boring, you know. Yeah. So, because you have an MBA from the Grenoble School yeah, of Management, yeah. right? So, are you, have you always been preparing for life after cycling? Are you always looking at what your life will be afterwards? Mm, I'm always thinking about it, but uh, no... Yeah, but you're planning because a lot yeah. of riders don't, and then they one no, day I, it's over and they don't know what to do. I can stop next year and be happy. And you've no what to do. Yeah, I know what I need to be happy in my life. I'm a really a sport addict, so I really need a lot of sports and challenge because I like the competition. But I always say that um, the position I am now and also in my career. Of, Really comfortable because the, it's almost like the the way was really straightforward. You, just, you know, mm. you don't have to to care about much more things when you're cyclist. You just have your program every day, every day. You build up like this, but, but then when you jump to normal life, you for me it would be the, the biggest challenge. But um, I think I'm, I'm ready for it because I'm lucky enough to yeah to also at the time to, to enjoy what I'm doing and I said and I'm, I don't need to stay in the pro cyclist longer to make me more happy or to, you know as long as I can be competitive really competitive and really play a, play a role in the, in the Grand Tour going for stage win and also be able to win a monument, I, I want to stay in the sport because I think that's something that I can achieve. Mm. But uh, yeah, when I realize that, yeah, it's harder for me to get that training and uh, the young guys are really now much better than, than I am. I don't want to be this guy and just be there because it's comfortable to be for something. Does that make it exciting for what life could be afterwards? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, really exciting because, you know, yeah. I met someone recently. For me, uh, I was going to say, I met someone recently who said that it's wrong to call it retirement because you're not retiring at 35. You're just closing a chapter in yeah, your life. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, for me, I really think it requires much more to make the retirement success than just being a good bike rider. Right. But I think, yeah, yeah, time to tell, but uh, 
I would be pretty excited because uh, you know I have so some some ideas about how balanced my life can be to just make it maybe a bit even more enjoyable than it is right now. Do you think that professional cyclists need to consider their life after cycling more? Because a lot of I've spoken to a lot of pro cyclists retired and not. And one thing that I always get as a common theme is that there's such little consideration for what their life will be afterwards. And ultimately, as a cyclist, the majority of your life is spent not being a pro cyclist, it's spent being just a normal person. So do you think that enough's done from teams, from from organisations to prepare these people for life away yeah. from the bike? Because you, you're, you're in the small centre where people yeah, get... Yeah, for me, you know, really for me, it's really responsibility of the people who are running the business who said, okay, you guys don't uh, don't leave school at, at 17 or 18. You just, uh, let's make sure you go, you all go, at least go through two years of making sure you are also professional background. Instead of cycling, that's what, for me, uh, the development team are really important. And uh, I've been through, uh, in a certain way, the, the program of the Detroit Chambéry, they are really making sure that uh, the bike riders also have uh, a bit of uh, professional yeah, experience, background, going to get some degree, whatever it is, whatever fits you. If you can, yeah, it's not always has to be something really intellectual, but you can just also have to learn a job, you know. To meet other people, I think, yeah, for me, it will be very good if we teams and also uh, the federation they really listen to our account. Said, okay, from 18 to 20, you can go in a development team. I think um, the system now with development team is what I see in GSM is run pretty smoothly. Mm. You can also bring some devo guy to some forests, so if you can. Take this window from 18 to 20 to say, okay, you can be a world tour provider until you are 20. From 18 to 20, you you will be in the team, you will be some occasion doing some pro races, but you need also to not being a full time cyclist, just having a bit of experience, getting yeah. your degree or learning a, learning a job. I think it will be a big, big step. Which is hard, but considering. Yeah. The best cyclists are getting younger and younger. You know, it's similar to football. The amount of people that were going to be the next professional footballer, 17, 18, dropped their studies. 19, 20, they get dropped by their club and they no longer play football. And they've got no qualifications. They've got no... And as an example, for, for an example, one of my cousins, he was a professional footballer at 20, career ended. But he, he was. He looked back. He hadn't gone to university because he was playing professional football. So then he goes, "What do I do now?" And he has to start his life again. So it's similar to that. Yeah, There'll yeah, be people yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty convinced it's uh, the next big stress for for cycling. Really? Yeah, because now nowadays it's crazy. I'm working really closely with my agent, with a one of my close friends as well. It's crazy. So now, uh, or the junior ones who an agent. Um, this is a slightly different question, Roman, but a bit more ethereal. But when you're in the mountains, how do you feel? When you're in 
And then this is in a race, but in, in training, how do you feel when you're alone in the mountains? I really belong to this environment. You know, I could have lived in any area without mountains. You know. So you could live in London? <laughs> I spoke yesterday to Leo Eiter, I think. Yeah, he he's lives about 20 minutes away from me. We ride the same areas. He goes a lot faster than me. He told me it was a bit like the Ardennes here. Yes. Mixed between the Ardennes and Flanders. Yeah. No, but yeah, to be honest, yeah. It's always been on my uh, But I'm out on my bike. Uh, I just try to achieve the best possible elevation. You know, so that sometimes make my trainers a bit angry, but yeah, for me it's... Uh, yeah. do, you, do you like to be alone in the mountains? Yeah. You like to be alone? Yeah, yeah, I don't like own. to. I don't like to. Even when I'm climbing a big, uh, a big car or something, I like to be with with other guys. I like to be on my own. Even in my own pace and enjoying myself. Does that reflect your style of racing? So when you're in a professional race? Yeah. Do you prefer to be alone when climbing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather yeah, than yeah. seeing yeah, the yeah. Rather being disturbed by other elements, yeah. Yeah, that's sort of something, yeah. But for me, yeah, I can't uh, consider myself without uh, yeah, training. The mountains and also in the in the car and in the because where I live it's quite hilly but it's not like the Alps as well yeah. so but I really always have some quite roads and I can really achieve a good elevation uh, at the end of the ride so that's really something I really need. Um, you're also regarded as a, an incredible descender, um, one of the best in the peloton. So, talk me through your mindset when you're descending in a pro race. For example, the Col de Alum, which in the Dauphiné, yeah. I've ridden up the Alum, and the way you descended it, and I've seen how narrow that road is, it was incre- is incredible. What, how, what is your mindset when you're doing that? I don't know. It's hard to say. I just, I think I like the, the speed. I really like the speed and the fact too. Also trying to push you a bit on, on the limit because yeah, it's not something super common to riders are just thinking about the climb and the way you can make difference in the climb or just most of the time just survive the climb. But then once the when just when they pass the land, they said, "Okay, job is done, and now we keep it safe." And, but yeah, I always find really interesting to try to take advantage from yeah every opportunity you have mm-hmm. during the bike race and uh, I felt that I, I can really so express myself and have some, some freedom when I'm descending so that's also yeah on a more funny side uh, just to say that you can maybe you are just um, the two wheels yeah, the two wheels engine can be the fastest of the segment when you listen because you can wait well, as fast as a motorbike and uh, so the crowd can be really struggle to <laughs> yeah to cope you so now I would find find it way fun even if I'm not doing for, for the risk just with the adrenaline can gives you. Mm. Did you know in you know the code at all which is one of your most famous descents? 
that was in the 1975 Tour de France when uh, Bernard Fevenet beat Merckx. Did you know that on that day, a Bianchi team car crashed off the side of the mountain? Everyone was fine. Okay. I don't know. There was, which is crazy. Yeah, but I already spoke about Darnell because people are really, are really thinking that uh, I've done a recon on myself. I'm so sure if I've done a recon, I've lost by myself. Really? Yeah, because I just like to... What I really prefer is when you have just a motorbike TV in front of you and you can really rely on the... On the, on the stopping light at the back of the, yeah. the motor and see how the curves looks just when you just when you enter it. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to talk about some stuff that's not cycling now. Um, what are you currently reading? What 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 book are you are you reading a book at the moment? Yeah, I'm um, I'm reading a, a book a book now about the, I know if you guys uh, heard about. The, they said uh, a bit of the French connection about the the French scene of the of the DJ. It's it's actually written by the one of the two guys of Cassius Brown, and it's uh, it's about the rise of the yeah what we call the really the uh, the rise of the Daft Punk and stuff like that. Uh, so Daft Punk Justice. Just, the, the, the rest is our bit. The Rex Club in Paris, right? Yeah, is where exactly. they play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a bit of his biography about um, the, the rise of like French yeah, the, dance. The French couch. Yeah. 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 Mm. So it's pretty interesting, but yeah. Are you more of a, like a television film person? No, no. no. Are you doing watching okay, television no. or film? No, 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 just some some series. But uh, I like to go to, to the cinema as well. And but uh, what was the last good film you watched in the cinema? Uh, the French Dispatch. The French Dispatch. Is that the Wes Anderson? Is that uh, the, it's the one with yeah. Uh, yeah. my best French actor. Which is? Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet, okay, yeah. He's a big fan of football. Really? Yeah, he used to, he used to live in Saint-Étienne. So he's a Saint-Étienne fan. Yeah, yeah. Saint-Étienne had I really like best. this guy because, you know, it's very really the opposite of the, what really uh, a big actor could look like, you know? Yeah. He's he, a he's fucking June, skinny right? guy. And, yeah. Uh, but he's so, yeah. yeah, his rise is totally impressive, he's just a game changer in the, in the business. So, so he's a, and he's a San Etienne fan. Yeah. They had one of the best kits ever. Yeah, exactly, it was the Cox Party. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so in the UK, we have something called Desert Island Discs, which is a radio show where the guests will ask, uh, the, the, the guests will be asked to, basically have five songs that they would take to a desert island and one book. What would be the book that you took to a desert island? I think I would be more comfortable with the songs. With the songs? <laughs> what, 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 uh, what, what the book really... Uh, I don't know, I don't want to, to say classic. Or... So no Camus or... No, nothing. No, no. Even if I... No. I really... I had one period when Greeks... Philosophy, yeah. because I really find really some some nice insights about uh, yeah back in that days, and it also remains super actual. So right, it's people like Socrates, yeah, Socrates, and, yeah. 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 But yeah, you know, I'm not like I'm not really going into into the, the books and 
So yeah, I could say, say some, but. Have you ever spoken to Guillaume Martin about yeah, Socrates? Yeah. Because yeah? yeah, yeah. he's, uh, he's written his own philosophy book, right? Yeah, he's really, yeah, he's pretty interesting guy. Yeah. Um, but what would be the songs then? If you had to take some songs to Desert Island, what are you taking? Some good French songs or some definitely one from Daft Punk, maybe yeah, one more time, one uh, from uh, Angus and Judaston, it's right. a Australian group. Uh, yeah, and some from I don't know, Phoenix, you know Phoenix? No. They're a French group? They're or? French, but they're really big in, in America. They're all born in Versailles, really close to Paris. Yes. But then they really went to the US and gets really big. Really big there. So. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and so you get to take one item on this desert island. What would you take? A bottle of wine. A bottle of wine that always refills at the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, we spoke before we came, actually, Roman, about your love of sport beyond cycling. What sport do you admire most outside of cycling? I like to say, even it's a bit confidential, uh, cross country skiing. Yeah. I like it. You're a good skier, I've heard. Pretty okay. Yeah. Not really, not really good, but pretty okay. And uh, because I'm, I'm a terrible runner, I really like to run, but I'm very good at it. Because yeah, I played football. What position? Uh, middle right. Okay, so center mid, center mid right. Yeah, I'm a center back. And on my good days, ten. Ten, really? Okay. So I, now it's pretty good in. Uh, but yeah. then you know, like in a in a ten Zidane role or sorry, like in a Zidane role yeah, in ten. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, because I went to cycling due to my to my father because I just wanted to do say as him. He was a regional rider, but I just always. Follow him on Sunday and the, the races around the area. But honestly, I think I would love playing football. I don't know. And I was not good enough to make uh, to, to make it maybe alive. And I would really enjoy it. You know? But that's something you can do in retirement. You can go play football again. Yeah. And uh, uh, you were saying you wanted to go watch Chelsea play this weekend. So I would like like just to follow. Yeah, and um, so, but I'm not really. Yeah, I like to follow football now. But for me, it's really became too too far from my from what I like in sports. Yeah, yeah. I'm really close to the the rugby guys because they probably felt the same like like them. You know, they're really they're super friendly. But it's not. Football, in, I don't know if it's in, in the UK, but uh, in France, it's really just too much. Or it's, I can't have a super rich. I as can't well. have a proper discussion Really? Because I mean, I guess the rugby they are just the same, no? They're like usual in people. In Carmel, they are. It's so nice, man. After but, the game, they're just walking out of the vestiary and they're just having a beer with the supporters. You the, have a common. You, you have shared something in common with those people in that yourself and the rugby players from Claremont will be big in Claremont. So everyone will know who you yeah. are because yeah. everyone will know you're a man by day, but everyone will know who 
Morgan Power is or yeah. Wesley Fofana. But yeah, but yeah, still not the same. Even because uh, Clermont they jumped into the first division, so it's very nice for the students. So they are not even affordable because it, no one knows who they are. They're just footballers, so they just can't be with anyone. You know, they're just too big. But yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, it's not. And that's really why, like rugby and cycling, doesn't come into really, really sports, popular sports. You know? mm. We don't take girls for any other. And I don't feel the same as football because I really felt that they are, I would say, they are here. So they they leave the. I don't speak for for everyone because I also met some with the wine. I don't know if you remember this guy. I think he got some selection French team. Eric Carrier. Yeah. He has a decent career in Nantes. He was really famous in Nantes. And uh, he's now in the business of wine. He's super nice guy. With young people around, in Clermont Ferrand with football, they are always not in, not in the same world. Yeah. And then you go to PSG, and they're even the bigger superstars. Kylian Mbappe. Yeah. Um, how are you going to spend your winter, Romain, this year? I was. Uh, in the past, always uh, trying to to find out the best plan going in the sun this period here, here, and we just focus a lot about training. Just but now, now I'm much more, much more relaxed, much more relaxed. You know, start training again with a clear and super good plan next Monday. But yeah, the most important thing is to keep really mental energy. So yeah. I will stay as much as possible with the family at home. We have a chance to have one of my best friend and closest teammate, Roman Combo, who just lived 2K away from me. So we have the same trainers as well, so we can have the same program. It, it's a bit like going to the, also to, to the office with him because we meet every morning, we do the, we have a bit. During uh, November, December, we have quite the same program, so that's really nice. Maybe if the weather is bad, we have a place in the south, we can have some good training, find some other good uh, yeah, good friend in the south, uh, a place around Nice, so I can easily go for a ride with the guy from Monaco and stuff, so it's also nice. Yeah. But yeah, when he was arrived, but I realized uh, over the years it was really important to the good training for sure, but you're really focused on it, but just don't add too much pressure on the winter because when there are already goals or I don't know, say March, April or May, you can also you really need to yeah, don't add too much pressure to yeah, too too soon in the season. So and my final question Roman is it's your thirty first birthday next week, right? Yeah. How are you celebrating it? <laughs> yeah, we just no, I think yeah. We really wanted to organize a, we had the idea until the, the last time and then I dropped it to last year due to the COVID we couldn't because I was really my I can't really to organize a big big party like a bit like we did in in our wedding because it was really spontaneous weekend so we saw the all the friends maybe sixty or seventy people but just because we couldn't help it. So I think we just have a good dinner at home with some fine wine that's still in the 
just sit on. That sounds good. Roman, thank you very much. Thank you. Been a pleasure. So there we are, James. Mr. Roman Bardet. Uh, I took him to the pub in London. He enjoyed it. He really liked it, actually. He said that bistros in France were shit. So when you go to a traditional pub, it's quite a treat. I mean, what's funny is just to put that pub into some context, or to further put that pub into some context, it was just around the corner from our old offices. Um, And it is very much the sort of pub that someone that's not from the UK or from England particularly thinks of as being a quintessential English pub, which we think of as basically being a bit of a hole, the sort of place where (laughs) the carpets stick to your feet when you walk. The place smells of spilt beer the entire time. The bar staff never change and are surly but generally nice. And I'm just going to point out that our company, Dennis Publishing as well, has probably spent hundreds of thousands of pounds in there over multiple Friday nights and for some people, Monday lunchtimes over (laughs) decades. And then when you came to want to do, uh, not that we're bitter about this, but wanted to shine a little spotlight on there, on the pub uh, and, and use their upstairs room, use their upstairs room, room. not being used on a Thursday afternoon. Colin, Colin charged you 80 quid. 80 quid? 160, James. Oh, was it? Because I spilt into a second hour. Oh, my days. 80 quid an hour. So anyway, so there's that. But anyway, it's, it's, it's funny because that pub is, everyone Everyone knows that pub and it's not a particularly nice pub. We used to love it because it is, it's got a genuine warmth and a heart to it. But it's funny that someone like Roman Bardet comes over and goes, oh, you know, pubs at home or bistros at home are rubbish. I love this sort of place. <laughs> What's it like? It's a, it's a bit like someone being like, like Foster's to an Aussie. Yeah. I, I I appreciated the fact that he enjoyed it and he enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, we could have taken him into a, a nice, like, restaurant or hotel to do the interview. But I thought, no, I'll treat Roman. I'll get him a couple of powwows. I'll have a Guinness and we'll, we'll just have a chit-chat, which we did. And what we also learned among... The fact that he's enjoying his time at Team DSM and, you know, the pressures that he felt AG2R. And also I found quite interesting was the fact that he's pretty ready to retire. He's pretty set when, you know, when the time comes, he's not going to miss cycling. Um, Was that when I asked him his Desert Island Discs, choice of songs, a book, uh, and most importantly, a luxury item, he told me a bottle of wine that whenever it was empty would instantly refill, which I thought was... Uh, very telling and very uh, warming. But it makes me think, James, if you were on a desert island and you could have a luxury item, what would you have with you? Uh, I mean, goodness me, Joe, this is incredibly difficult. Um, On the food theme, if it was just going to be food, it would be similar to Roman, but it would be a an unlimited, well, a never-ending supply of wasabi peas, pub-grade wasabi peas. Is that what you're going every, for? Every, every other, every other ten blows your head off. Yeah, a bit of wasabi pea roulette to keep me going. Right. On those, on those long, sweaty days. Um, I'd also, maybe I'd, I might also consider a spoke key, because any time I've ever wanted a spoke key, I haven't had one, and I re- and it's the only thing that will do the job. So there might just be a time on the island. I can't foresee it, because that's the thing. I can't foresee it. That's why I yeah, don't yeah. Bring, take one normally. So just to cover cover my backside there, I might take a spoke key, just in case I break a spoke on the bicycle that I might find washed up somewhere. Um, 
and beyond that, it's very, it's such a difficult question. I want to. I'm going to think on a little bit. I'm going to ask you. Yeah. I'm going to bat that back to you, and I'll come up with a better answer. So I've immediately sort of ruled out anything bike related because, as we spoke about before we came onto the recording, chances are this desert island's not going to have any roads. No roads. So we're not going to be able to ride a bike unless you've got one of those crazy fat bike that can ride on sand, and then that's not that fun. Um, so what I did think was, does, what do they say? Is it to become an expert? How many hours do you have to put in safe? Ten, 10,000, says Malcolm Gladwell. So Malcolm Gladwell said that if I do 10,000 hours, I'll become an expert or something. Yeah. What can I do on a desert island for 10,000 hours become an expert of that I don't need to refuel or refill? Darts. So I'd like a dartboard and three darts. So therefore, hopefully, I could become an expert after 10,000 hours of practice. And I think well, like, also those darts can be used to kill, kill animals. Or kill or fish? No, 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 no. You have you you haven't you haven't quite grasped the rules, Joseph. You can't use your um you can't use your luxury item uh, in a practical sense. Can't have practical connotations. All right then. Okay, okay. I'll have one of those magnet dartboards. A magnet dartboard. Yeah, you can have a magnet dartboard because you're I don't know you're not gonna. Because then what happens is when I get washed when when I eventually get found by a freight ferry when I eventually make my big castaway break for freedom. And I'm found by a big freight ship in the middle of the Southern Ocean. Uh, and they take me home. And the, there's the whole furore of me being a castaway, a desert island survivor. You get that fame. You know, you're on the one show. Then I go, well, hang on a minute. I've actually got very good at darts. <laughs> you then enter the, the BDC World Championships. Yeah. BDO, sorry, World Championships, yeah. which is notoriously a lot easier than the PDC World Championships that we just had this week gone yeah you win that at a canter because that's almost amateur Easy. then you get invited to the pdc you work your way up and you start to win major tournaments you win the us the uk open you win the masters the grand prix of darts then eventually you're in the alley pally you're taking on Gerwin price or peter wright at the hockey and you're called uh i would be called like castaway joe robinson or Sort of like Riptide, no, Joseph Riptide Robinson. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And it, I would have like um, a Beach Boys song as my entrance music. And I'd really play on the fact that I was a, a former castaway. Well, um, well, I don't know if I can necessarily compete with that. Um, you know, there's, there's obvious things like, like I say, you can't have anything that's, uh, that's practical, so you can't have any kind of like implements for, I was going to say like cast iron skillet. Something like that. Something to hit the monkeys around the head when they come looking, come after the coconuts, and also to fry the monkeys. I'm assuming they're monkeys on this island. Uh, but just to keep yourself going, that's the thing. We always assume that it's a desert, like it's in a somewhere sunny. Could be an island off, like off the Antarctic or the Arctic. It could be Dungeness. <laughs> yeah, it could be. That's a, that's a desert. That is a that shingle beach is a desert. Yeah, it could be that island that um, they used to film Fort Bayard on the former oh, prison yeah. off the French coast where there's tigers and uh, for a while that was actually filmed on a on a um, uh, on a fort off the English uh, off the English coast Portsmouth no less and it's just it's just you Melinda Messenger Tom Baker and the ghost of Lensley Grantham <laughs> so for all of these reasons very difficult to choose but uh, maybe the complete works of James Bond 
Nah, that'd be yeah. Good. Or like SNES, a SNES with Mario Kart on it. Nice. Yeah. But come back to me. You've jumped on me with a question that, frankly, takes people years to answer properly. They, people get a heads up. People get a heads up of at least, you know, at least a week before they go before right. Lauren talks them. Roman Bardet got all of twenty seconds. Yeah, but he's been asked that before. Okay, fair enough. Well, you know what? I will bring it to an end there, James. Uh, before we ramble on any more about darts or musical theatre, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure you share, like. You can actually review us on Spotify now, which is great. Uh, so do that if you listen on Spotify. But until next time, James, I'll see you later. Thanks, mate. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra Collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below.